there's a rich history that already exists in publishing that a developer can just come in and say, I, I kind of love books too, and I bet we can like maybe make some of this stuff a little better. Welcome to the seventh episode in our series of Tech Forum Talks. I'm Zelina Alvey, the Community Manager here at BookNet Canada. And that was Derek Schultz, the Director of Developer Experience at Atavist. As a designer and developer working at the many edges of digital books, Derek has a unique take on the storied history of collaboration between the book industry and its technological saviors slash disruptors. In this talk, Derek examines this clash of cultures and how we can all learn to forge ahead together. I should note that Derek's presentation slides are definitely worth a look, and you can find those at slideshare.net slash booknetcanada. And now, here's Derek. For two different publishers, uh, that we're working essentially in the digital space. First one was this place called Open Air Publishing. Um, we were the first uh, company to license um, Inkling's platform and use it for adult, non, uh, adult how-to nonfiction. We produced books about cocktails, parenting, uh, photography, uh, all these different things. Um, and we actually like won a couple Apple awards very early on in the, in the iPad app days. Um, had a, saw some decent success. Uh, but in the end, it wasn't really enough of a success, and I can get into some of that stuff a little bit later on. Um, ended up selling the company back to Inkling. Um, and these guys were uh, actually uh, a lot of Canadians were working with these. Uh, our CEO is from McGill. Um, and just to sort of point out, like, this was such a startup-y company that I was actually the only person with publishing experience, and that was having done, like, random art books as a designer. Um, and now about half the team works at Uber. so. I don't know, take that to be whatever you want <laughs> from there. Uh, after Open Air, I moved on to this company called Atavis Books. And yes, those dates are correct. It lived from 2014 to 2014. Uh, Atavis Books was a, a, was a really great idea. Uh, it was founded um, by a wonderful uh, editor, Francis Cody, um, Barry Diller. So it was actually an IAC company. They own Vimeo, they own College Humor, a bunch of other uh, big media things. Um, and the idea was just to really like take Francis's ability to work with amazing fiction authors and find a way to get them to create things in the digital space. Um, but as sometimes what happens with big companies like IAC, they were sort of unhappy with sort of where it ended up being and thought that the space wasn't exactly where they, where they thought it was going to be um, and ended up closing us down. So our first title was in March with um, Karen Russell's Sleep Donation. Uh, and our last title was a print title called Dear Thief, which came from the UK. But we did some really cool things in the middle of that. Um, and actually, just this week, um, one of the Gawker properties wrote about our book called The New World and said, if you're going to read any digital ebook, this is the digital ebook to read. Uh, so, like, still kind of cool. Um, now I work for a company called Atavist. And yes, I realize that's really confusing. Uh, <laughs> Atavist is a separate company from Atavist Books, but we had a partnership. Uh, Atavist Books was using the Creativist platform. Yes, Creativist is another thing that Atavist owns, in addition to this thing called Atavist, which is a magazine. So believe me, I'm as confused as you are about all that. Um, so when, when people, a lot of people have come up to me and said, oh, I'm really sorry to hear Atavist closed. Where are you working now? And I was like, uh, Atavist. <laughs> but anyway, I digress. Uh, so yeah. Um, so I'm sure like probably a lot of you are thinking like, all right, this guy's worked for some failed companies. Why the hell do we have him up here? Uh, and the best I can give you is sort of this. Uh, when I started doing all this, I was reading about five books a year in total. 
Um, and those are mostly like big design tomes, like beautifully richly designed books. Um, and just a couple weeks ago, I did this uh, art project for a friend and I ended up like going back and looking at all the books I read last year. And I read over 40 books and that was almost entirely on my iPhone, either in bed, on a subway, in an airplane. So like in this, I, I feel like, uh, you know, what's the hair club for men? I'm not just the CEO, I'm a proud user. Um, <laughs> that's, sort of, that's sort of how I feel and I'm now like a little self-conscious about my hair. But, <laughs> but I mean, this is sort of like, I actually do believe in this stuff and I think that there are, you know, it's a slower process than I think any of us expected, but I really feel like there are people who are really die hard into eBooks and digital books and I think the digital book space has like this great opportunity to become something that is a part of publishing but isn't like the only thing in publishing. Uh, so I don't, how do I start from there? Um, I'll start with some facts, like real, real facts. Um, startups are stupid. Like they're such a, they're such a terrible idea. Like the, the basics of them are, like the basics of them are like this great idea, right? Like let's start up a new company, but like the culture that's kind of surrounded it has just kind of like made it feel really icky. Um, and icky is a real term, I swear. Uh, so when we talk about like, I, I want to talk about developer culture, but sort of realize like developer culture has basically just become startup culture. Like 10 years ago, I could talk about techno hippies that like had weird servers in like San Francisco and were trying to like change the world. And now we have companies that are like trying to help you do social mobile, like share a photo of your cat, um, which is great. I love those apps, but like not necessarily the same thing as like world changing. And I think that can be kind of be summed up with this idea of like this, is fa this was Facebook's motto up until like six months ago. And the idea is move fast and break things. And like in the startup world, like that sounds great. Like, yes, we're gonna break a bunch of stuff, but that's actually terrible. Like I don't want anyone like coming into my home and like running around and breaking stuff. Like that's actually kind of like, it's rather like insidious to actually do this. Um, now Facebook's uh, motto is move fast with stable infra. I don't, I'm sure, I'm sure Mark, under, Mark Zuckerberg understands that better than I do, but yeah. Um, but there's also this other thing that I hear a ton of startups talk about, and it's this idea of ask for forgiveness, not permission. And I don't know about you, but like, if someone came up and punched me and then said, oh, I'm sorry, I would have asked, but I just really wanted to do it ahead of time. Like, I don't know, it's like, this is, but this is sort of what's become a part of, part of developer culture. And it's, be, it's because of VCs, it's because of other things. And, you know, it's sort of made me less interested in working with startups and more interested in moving with publishers. But I also have to be like really fair and balanced. Uh, publishing is stupid too. <laughs> like we're all doing sort of like, we all love what we're doing, but at the same time as a business, it's a really weird model. Like, I literally just Googled publishing industry is stupid and this quote came up. <laughs> um, and I, I'm sure uh, Thomas Wolfe is, I'm sure this is like a 50 year old like, you know, quote, but like it actually still holds. Like we're all sitting here looking at Kobo's data and we're like, oh my God, there's actual like data about how people are reading our books. And it's, we're still in this weird world of like, we don't know why that book sold a lot. We don't know like why certain things are taking off and not. Like we have guesses. We don't really like have a whole bunch of data backing that up. 
and as a business, like that's rather strange. Um, so yeah, but I mean, like, so here, here's the other side of this again. Uh, throw out most, bet on a few, and win with one or two. That's a VC like idea, right? Like spread out your bets, like, and a couple of them will win. But the honest truth is that's how books work too. Like, a lot of publishers work on this model of like we're gonna buy a bunch of books and we're gonna have a couple bestsellers and that's how we're gonna make like make a business out of this. So in this in this weird way, there are a lot of like overlaps. Um, and there are some interesting things that you sort of like realize like, oh yeah, when I was working for this like startup, like it was weird and like we had some strange things go on, but like now I'm working at a publisher and the other strange things are going on. Um, all right, so thank you. I really just, <laughs> I needed to like just sort of vent a little bit because sometimes, you know, I get with, together with my friends and they're like, God, will you just shut the fuck up about this already? <laughs> All right, so let me, <laughs> let's just like start over here and we can sort of like actually look at this like it's a, like it's a, a real problem. Um, this is this tweet that I found from my friend Boris who um, is, is starting his own sort of like little publishing startup. Um, and I, I, I just love this graphic. It might be a little hard to read up there, but it's basically a breakdown of all the different pieces of a workflow within a publisher, right? From not just the production, but to the distribution and to the consumption side. Um, and his point was basically like, you could, stick a, you could stick a team of developers on any one of these areas and they would help uh, fix, or at least make some things more efficient, maybe change a couple other things. Like, it's a really interesting idea that like, publishing has this, these huge webs of all these different pieces that they connect to. Um, and if you, as a developer or something, could say jump into like the distribution chain and say, well actually if we digitize this or made an API for this, like we could save you a little bit of time, probably some money, and maybe get people more access to books. Like that's kind of an amazing thing. Like sometimes startups like just come out of nowhere and we're like, I think people want to tweet 140 characters and that's just, I just think people want to do that. Like here there's like some, there's something wonderful. There's a rich history that already exists in publishing that a developer can just come in and say, I, I kind of love books too and I bet we can like maybe make some of this stuff a little better. Uh, maybe, save some, maybe save some people some headaches, that sort of thing. Um, but what I think is actually really interesting about this is it, it does, it, it helps me see how a startup works versus how a publisher works. Um, so for example, like this is how a startup would work. They would look at that chain and say, where do we disrupt um, something? And they'd, they'd start with something really small, right? Like, so they might say, like, people have a problem with highlighting in books. And people have a problem with sharing those highlights. So why don't I make an app where all you do is share highlights? Or all I do, all you do is, like, you can share a screenshot of what the text looks like and make people, make publishers freak out about DRM all over again. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting little project. Like, they start with something so small and try to, like, build up a mass around it. Uh, and that's like the first year is just trying to like create this one little thing that everyone loves. And then year two and three is like expanding from that. So they're sort of working backwards, right? Like they're, instead of like looking at like how do we change the whole production supply chain, they're like how do we fix highlighting? How do we turn that into something like being able to add a review with a highlight or being able to share like your review and a highlight? Um, so it's, it's a really interesting little thing that like startups sort of work backwards. They start very small. 
um, and they do a lot of little things to see if this is a good area, see if it's going to work. Um, if they get bored or they don't work, they can always sell their company to Facebook and go work for them. Um, so it's like pretty safe. Like it's, it's a good little model to work with. Um, but publishers, on the other hand, whenever someone says like, oh yeah, we're going to make a CMS that, re that redoes the production workflow, like this is what they're trying to change. They're trying to change everything at once. It takes five years, like three CTOs like put themselves into a mental institution because it's impossible. And the day that it launches, everyone's like, this thing is terrible. What did we do? Why did we make this again? And I think that this, this exposes some sort of like underlying problem that it's sometimes about viewpoints, sometimes about how much we're trying to take on at once. Um, but it's a hard problem because from a publisher's perspective, like this is really important. Like these things all matter to them. But to a startup, like they're sort of just looking for a way to, for a VC to keep giving them free beer. Um, and I, I know that sounds mean, but like in some ways, like they're having fun, like they're enjoying it, and they are solving a problem. They're just solving one that is like a little bit smaller than than a big publisher would have to. So, like I said, I think that actually does really sort of explain the difference in cultures. Um, and with all that being said, like I've now worked as I've worked at a bunch of startups uh, prior to being in publishing. I've worked at a publishing startup. And I've worked at a much more traditional publisher that was being started up, uh, even though we wouldn't necessarily call it a startup. Um, and all that's sort of given me some time to just sort of see some things, see some perspective. Uh, I now work for a platform where we actually can allow publishers to use our tools to publish their own things. So it's sort of given me a meta level view to sort of begin to say, well, look, I learned a lot of these things and maybe like I found out that this was kind of a bad idea. So maybe if you're just jumping into this, I can offer some insights. Might not actually be true for you, but I can at least offer some thoughts. So here are literally a bunch of random thoughts. Um, some of them are sequenced, but for the most part, it's just going to be all over the place. Uh, I, this is just a life thought, um, but it also applies to publishing. Um, I can't tell you, like, so Atavis Books in a, as a production facility was open for about nine months, and there wasn't a day where I didn't go in and change something drastically. Um, and I think that that's sometimes hard for an industry that has, for you know, in in relative terms, been very stable. Um, that to now understand that, like, wait, we need to market on Facebook, and then oh wait, actually we need to market on this thing called Snapchat, or like, I don't know, we need to set up a Tinder profile for our books. Like that seems weird. Um, <laughs> I would totally use a Tinder for books, by the way. Uh, I don't know, whatever. Um, <laughs> so uh, I'm going to go find a VC after this. Uh, yeah, I mean, so this is, you know, this is obviously, I think this is the same thing. Like, everyone hears this and is like, yeah, 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 yeah. But it's kind of true. Like, I, and this is something I actually take some excitement away from. Like, the fact is, like, the ebook that I made uh, six months ago is, di is going to be different than the ebook I make today. Um, and the way that our editorial team at Atavis Books worked on day one was very different than the way they worked on day, I can't do math today, so 250, let's just say. Um, so I think that this is actually something you can embrace. Like, you can embrace this idea of constant change, and really what you need to do is, is find a framework that works better to accept change, find a solution to it that doesn't require 10 meetings and people flying across the globe, but can work a little bit more flexibly. Uh, maybe I'll talk about that a little bit later. Let's see. 
All right, thought two. Uh, every time we talk about digital publishing or publishing with digital developers, eventually people talk about Amazon, they talk about eBooks, but I haven't heard anyone talk about this. Like, people lost their jobs through that Sony hack. And I think that this is still something that like, okay, you can hire a developer to work on an ebook, you can hire a developer to help like build out your, work, your production workflow, but maybe you should also make sure you hire a developer that like is making your email secure. Or, you know, making sure that your contracts aren't being stolen and then being published somewhere. Um, so this is another thing is like, don't just think about a, the, the developer as like this little guy that like, he works in this other office and therefore like, he builds our ebooks but we don't really ever have to talk to him. Like you should be thinking about using developers on like a much larger scale. Um, and maybe you can outsource this to someone, maybe you can't. Um, but digital is actually like influencing every little bit of our workflow now from emails to, you know, faxes or whatever it is. Like it, it's now a bigger, it's now a bigger thing to have a developer on your team than it is to just have a developer that makes your eBooks for you. Uh, I was uh, asking, I was begging for help basically at some point. My friend Alan uh, said the only rule is uh, only the paranoid survive. He works at the New York Times. I don't know if that actually like correlates or if there's a reason like he learned that there or if that's just his own personal mantra. But I think there's some truth to it. Uh, and I think that's actually the one thing that publishers are really, really good at. <laughs> uh, maybe with DRM, maybe? Uh, I mean, I think it, there's some truth to the fact that like you should be cautious about jumping into new things. You should be considerate of like, well, what does this do to our, like we don't want to cannibalize our current business. But you should also be paranoid on the other side. You should be paranoid that like, what if Readmill actually took off? Like, or what if 10 years ago someone had said, hey, that Amazon thing, that might be a problem for us. Uh, so I think it's worthwhile to consider being both paranoid about your current business, but also paranoid about what your future business is gonna be. Um, and I don't know what, a, I don't know why a developer is telling you this, but that, that's, my, that's my idea. <laughs> I stole that from Alan, actually. Uh, speaking of the times, um, this is something I've just sort of noticed in general is that newspapers' digital strategies are like 10 years ahead of what publishers have to worry about. Some of that has to do with the fact that the web like really hit them a lot harder and a lot quicker because of length of articles, um, the way news gets spread versus books get spread. Um, but I think it's really valuable to think about how, what a publisher is doing now versus what maybe a book publisher should be doing. So for example, if you think about paywalls, paywalls are essentially a subscription plan. Um, and that, you know, the, the New York Times like big paywall subscription thing was like five years ago. And that was a big hullabaloo. And now we're hitting this thing where Amazon is jumping to subscriptions, Oyster exists, Scribd exists. So you could have sort of seen these things coming because of what was happening to newspapers. Um, there's no direct correlation, but there's at least something there that says, well, maybe we can look at what, you know, people who have already faced this business model is. I think we talk a lot about the music industry because of copyrights and other things, and we say, well, look at what happened to them as like some sort of fear-mongering system. But I also think like newspapers are a great model to look at um, as a way to sort of figure out like, well, what did they do? Like, how are they thriving? And some of them are thriving, some of them aren't. And there's some other new journalism things like Gawker, The Verge, or well, Vox Media that are coming up and they're doing amazingly well for themselves by adapting to what the web needs as a model for journalism. 
Uh, I'm going to quickly jump here because I think this is sort of the thing that I can actually talk about with some knowledge, um, which is building tools for your team. Uh, whether it's building a CMS that generates an ebook or building something that helps your editors uh, do their work a little bit faster. And this is the one thing that I will say startups have actually figured out and is something that we should really look at adopting within publishing, which is start small, then build your crazy tools on top of that. So like, don't try to build that like nuclear rocket like day one, especially if you've never built a rocket before. Like start by learning how to like light a match. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think this is the same thing. I mean, this is something that we actually saw a lot of Avis books. One of the big things with Avis books was that we decided we weren't going to adopt a lot of the traditional publishing outsource tools, which meant we were doing our own direct to retailer submissions, which is a total pain in the ass. I can see why everyone uses a different system now. Um, but you know, so, and here's the thing is like, we decided, okay, we need a, our own metadata storage system. Um, so I was telling people uh, yesterday that I made my junior developer sit down and literally write down every field that every uh, e-tailer requires and put it all in Excel spreadsheet with the type, what the field is, what the field type is. And I think he had like a thousand fields by the end of this thing. Um, so we sat down and we built a very simple tool that covered 80% of those. We knew that some of those things were outliers and if we tried to build a system that actually worked for everything, we were gonna be stuck in development and QA for like three months. But we instead gave the editorial team something that they could use would solve a bunch of their problems and then those weird outliers they only had to spend you know, a little bit of time on. Um, so this is really my next point as well. Um, it's not about the perfect tool, it's about an optimal tool. Um, I'm just gonna quickly show you, I don't know if there's actually a really name for this law or this idea, but there's this really wonderful um, XKCD. Let's see if the internet's working here, it is, cool. Um, this is a wonderful little chart that basically said, and this is like a developer, developer mantra, like how quickly, should, like do I automate this or do I not? And here's like this funky little chart that says, how often do I do this? How much time does it save me? Should I automate or should I not? Um, it's a really interesting little tool and I try to apply it not just to uh, work, at, work at my publishing groups but even into like life things. <clears throat> so again, like this isn't necessarily to, to disrespect publishers but it is to sort of point out some things. Almost all of us are trying to solve the same things. We're all trying to solve the fact that most ebook rendering is shit and yet we're all doing it on our, by ourselves and we're not sharing code with each other and we're making all of our lives hell. Um, whereas instead, we could all be working together on these things. Um, for example, like I created this like thing on GitHub, which I'll talk about later, okay? Uh, don't worry if I said GitHub. <laughs> it's, it's okay, we're gonna get there. I'll also say command line, so don't worry. Um, I said this thing on GitHub that just said, that is just like a list of like rendering issues. So anytime anyone says that is, a, is an ebook developer has a problem with their device and figures out what, what the problem is, they just list it there. And then other people from the ebook production world jump on there and say, oh, you can fix that by doing this hack. You can fix that by doing this. Uh, yeah, this is completely unfixable. We should try to reach out to someone and try to solve it. And honestly, I kept that for my boss to add his books because I was sure that was gonna create a problem. Um, and I'm saying that now and they're gonna see that video feed and like, a month, so we'll see. See if I get a fun email. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is this is this is a this is one of the problems is that 
a lot of traditionally entrenched publishers are afraid to share how they work. But the truth is, most of us developers know how each other is working, but we just don't have the time to actually make things. Um, you know, th the great thing about development resources is they're all online. Like, I can Google search how to fix a bunch of ebook things. Maybe someone has solved it, maybe someone hasn't. But this stuff is all out there, and most of these stuff, things are built on open source tools, so you don't own the IP to them, sorry to say. Um, so, you know, this is, this, is a, this is a problem, but the thing is, uh, and we started to see this with IDPF, if we all get together in a room and say, what are, as, a, as a big publishing group of people, what are our biggest concerns? How can we you know, split up our time across all of our development teams? How do we make this all happen? Um, and I also, I get a lot of small publishers that ask me like, uh, you know, I have, I'm a small publisher, like I can't hire my own developer, what do I do? Um, I actually just saw that Verso Books was hiring a developer to work on both Verso Books and on New Inquiry, which is a magazine founded by Verso Books editor-in-chief now or something, they're finding a way to sort of collaboratively like hire an individual developer to do a bunch of work across a number of things. Um, and I think that alone could be an interesting model. Um, so yeah, just give us some thought. Uh, okay, I, I said I was gonna talk about GitHub and it's time. Everyone can like grab the table. Um, open source tools are actually really amazing from a developer perspective, not because they're free, and not even necessarily because they're open, but because they create a community around things. Uh, and the best thing that you find with development is that we all talk to each other and we all solve each other's problems. And uh, one day I'll be begging for some resource on how to fix this. And someone shoots me an email and says, you can fix that with this. This guy wrote a blog post about it. And the next day they're begging me for something that I can help them with. Um, so think about like development, not just as like these final projects that need to be made, but as building a community, and one of the things that I found a lot was like, my friends were telling people to buy Atavis books titles, in part because I'm, I'm their friends and I would, I would guilt trip them if they didn't, but also because like I said, like look, Atavis books is paying me to solve a lot of your problems too. And they said, oh, that's great, yeah, you're right, like this book looks great and you helped me a lot, out a lot with it. Um, so it's this weird like sort of potential marketing thing. Uh, maybe not, I don't know. Um, all right, so I, I, I had the same slide in yesterday's presentation. I'm gonna have it here again. If you're a publisher and you have a website and you're not selling your own books, I, I don't know what to tell you, but like, please stop and start selling your own books. Uh, the world opens up when you have your own dedicated place. Uh, I think Brian earlier was talking about the fact that like, now you can get news, they can get like people's email addresses, you can get data about like what's, what are people buying, like you just have this ability to create uh, your own environment that people can come to you for and begin to build your own brand um, or whatever. Uh, there's this article here by this guy Frank Camaro who I probably have two or three links in here. He talks about building your own porch um, in the world of social media where uh, basically Twitter is a street uh, and you've got like a big Facebook store on the corner and you've got, you know, LinkedIn uh, basically trying to buy out the entire block with weird pop-up ads. Um, you at least have your own porch and your own porch is where you can invite your friends in to have a drink. Um, you can decide how big that porch is. Um, but I think it's, it's, it's one of these things that like everyone on the, everyone that works in the web sort of knows like, oh yeah, you have your own web, you have your own web place where, to where you can do your own thing. 
uh, and you don't have to like stand by the rules of Twitter or Facebook or whatever it is. All right, off my soapbox. Um, I, I assume everyone knows what dog fooding is. Is that true? Uh, okay, maybe not. Um, eating your own dog food or dog fooding is the idea that you use your own products. Um, and basically that if you don't like your own product, it's very likely other people will not like their own product. Um, so for publishing, I'm going to call this e-booking. Um, in part because uh, I think a lot of people feel ebooks are like the dog food of books. Um, it probably doesn't taste that great, but some people eat it just for the sustenance. Um, so I did this thing. Um, actually, Atavis Books was the first place where I was actually working on ebooks. Uh, I don't know if I've ever admitted that to anyone in this room. Uh, but anyway, um, so I did this thing where I actually, uh, we had a, you know, because we, we had a, a nice source of funding, I bought a stack of devices. And every weekend, I would take home a different device, and I would force myself to read a book on that device. Uh, and honestly, I liked some of those devices. Like, I may have hated Nook's rendering, but I actually really enjoyed using that device. And I think what it helps you do is it helps you put, it helps put in perspective, like, this is the environment that various people are reading on. Like, yeah, like 75% of people, at least in the US, are reading on Kindles, um, but not everyone is, and not everyone has the latest model, those sort of things. Um, it really teaches you like, oh, this is the user experience of someone. Um, and I, I don't think this is just a thing for like developers. This is a thing that editors need to do too. I had a lot of editors who were like, I, I can't read on a Kindle, I have to read on paper. And I was always sort of a little hurt by that because like, I think if we were doing a digital only book and they didn't realize what the reading experience was, they were really missing out on an opportunity to say, oh, maybe this whole does, thing doesn't work like in, in a paginated mode. Like, maybe we should really think about how this looks. Um, so please go out and ebook-ing tomorrow. I don't know, whatever, whatever, whatever you want to call that. Um, institutional knowledge. Um, this is another like, weird soapbox thing for me, but something I feel like I really need to say here. Um, I am always surprised that publishers are willing to throw large sums of money at tools that they don't own and they have never experienced. Um, I mean, I think, you know, you guys can decide what you do, but you're losing out on so much institutional knowledge. Like, I have a lot of freelance ebook friends and they might get mad at me when I say this, but you should at least try building ebooks in-house. Um, you should at least know the problems you're gonna be facing. You should at least know, like, oh, this thing actually really is hard, so we really should hire a quality freelancer to do this the next time. Um, there's so much to be gained from like keeping knowledge in-house and using it. Um, like if you have an outside marketing firm, that outside marketing firm knows more about your company than you do. They know more about your audience than you do. Like that's, you should be afraid of that. Again, you should be paranoid of the fact that like other people know more about your business than you do. Um, you can't realistically keep all of it. Like you can't hire your own marketing person. You can't hire your own social person. Like you just realistically can't, especially if you're a smaller company. But you should be able to figure out, like, what is core to this business that I need to know about? And you should fight to keep it. Um, and I'll talk a little bit about some of these things in a minute. Oh, yeah, here we go. Okay. Uh, if you decide you do want to hire developers um, or you do need to build some tech products, uh, here are just some random thoughts I have and uh, on sort of experiencing that. It's worth a shot. 
Um, okay, I said be paranoid about institutional uh, knowledge and what you keep and what you don't keep. Um, and I, this one, I mean, this hurts because I, I have a lot of friends who are really smart and work at agencies and consultancies. But I think you have to be wary about like, are, what are you paying for? Are you really paying for this tool? Are you paying just upcharges? Um, do they care enough about your business to build a tool that you actually need? Um, I can't tell you how often I've worked with outside agencies where the thing is they want to make something cool, but they do not give a shit about what we actually need. And I, I realize I'm swearing a lot. That's just, that's another developer culture thing, I think, maybe. But like, I, I think it's really, it's really key that you understand that like sometimes a consultancy, well, a consultancy is their own business. Their job is to make money by continually making products. And sometimes the best way to make a product is to make it fast and hand it off. But sometimes it's not to sit with you for a year, which again, don't do a project of that scale, but sometimes it happens. Um, their job isn't to like make sure that it's exactly what you need uh, a lot of times. Um, so just you know, keep that in mind and maybe you should hire someone in-house. Maybe you should bring, one, so bring someone in uh, for a short duration of time to really sit with you and understand how it works. Because I can tell you as a developer, like getting an email from someone that says, I really wish this tool did X, Y, and Z, is not the same as me sitting down next to my editorial assistant and saying, well, what are you trying to do? And she shows me, and I say, wow, that's really hard. I bet I could solve that for you. Um, they're so different, they're so vastly different, that I think you really have to understand that like, the human connection there still matters a lot. Um, here, I'm gonna give you guys a good one. You can definitely tell a developer to, to fuck off. And because, like, here's the thing, in, a, in, the, in startup culture, we've sort of deified developers. Um, like, they're now the cool guys that they know how to write Node, they know how to write Rails, they know front end, they know back end, they're the full stack developer, they're a god. But in publishing, like, it's not the same thing. Like, your, your job isn't to make sure Twitter is running 24-7, your job is to make sure that you make a, they make a great book that is readable on all devices or you know, to help the editorial team. Like you're really a part of a team uh, and I think that's great, but I think it's also sometimes it's weird when I read stuff that's like, we're looking for a ninja and I'm like, well, that's cool, but like you don't want a ninja. Like a ninja is like hiding and they're always hiding. Like you want to see that person. <laughs> um, here's another soapbox thing. I don't believe writers need to be coders. I, vehemently do not agree with that. I learned that from Francis Cody out of his books. Um, I used to have this feeling like, man, if a writer knew how to write HTML, my job would be easier. But that's the thing is, it's not their job to make my job easier. Um, so, you know, there's, there's a group of people out there that say, writers need to learn Markdown. Writers need to learn HTML. I just don't buy it. Like, as a developer, I can very easily convert your Word document to another format. I can easily work with whatever you're working with. Sometimes I'm gonna grumble if I have to use an InDesign file and it's gonna take me a week to write some scripts to get it out of there, but I can do it. And the thing is, especially at Avis Books, when I read something that was beautiful and great and this amazing piece of work, I was like, I'll peel that dude's grapes if he just keeps writing. Like, whatever he wants, like, I'll, I'll find a way to support that. Um, last little thing. Uh, please let us take pride in our work and talk about it. Like, again, like, you would, you would gladly send an, an author to a conference and talk about their book if it meant they sold more books, right? 
So like as a developer, like if I go somewhere and say like we built this great tool, here's all the things that we learned about it, like, and it, it may produce this beautiful book, like at least someone in the audience is gonna buy a copy of that. Um, and you saying like, actually I don't want you talking about that because that's, that's private internal work. Again, it's probably not, like we're all using the same code bases and stuff, like we can probably figure it out. I could probably reverse engineer someone else's ebook if I really felt like it. So let us talk about it. Let us take pride in the work that we do because it makes you look better too. Uh, and then this last little, little thing, I'm just gonna talk a little bit about the web and how it applies to publishing because I've been talking a lot recently about how I want publishers to publish more on the web. Um, whether that's through things like content marketing or actually publishing your book on the web, which I really believe you should do. Um, so anyway, publishing has a 500 year history it's vast, it's huge, and the web's is just 30. But if you actually look at like, the speed that we've been moving at, that we're probably at the same scale of how much data and how much history is involved. Um, and all you have to do is ask someone about like, hey, like ask a, a developer like, hey, do you remember the EPA or the HTML 3.2 spec? And most of us will be like, I know, when was that? That's basically the same as asking someone like, today in, in production, like if they remember doing letterpress on a woodblock, you know, printing machine. Um, so it, it's worth acknowledging that like, yes, publishing has this huge and vast history, but so does the web. And that means that some of the things that you think are insane about the web, like the lack of DRM or the lack of, of you know, someone can just copy and paste my entire book and, and what can I do about it? Like there's a history behind that. And some of that history is ideological, some of it's technical, like there's a lot of stuff involved in this. And I think it's worth, again, if you're gonna go dog food an ebook, if you have a website, it's not a bad idea to also learn a little bit about the history of the web. Uh, so that's basically this point. Um, every once in a while, uh, very rarely I will say it out of his books, they were all really great. Someone would say to me, you don't understand book publishing. And they were absolutely right. I really don't understand a lot of book publishing stuff. But here we are trying to publish a book on the web and they don't know how the web works. They don't know, you know, and not even necessarily like, they don't know the technical infrastructure of how a web works. Like most of the, most editors probably don't know how a production work, how a, how a book gets, you know, printed and produced and those sort of things. But there's an underlying uh, ideology to the web. Um, and again, there's a Frank Camaro store, uh, link down here called The Grain of the Web that he just recently wrote. And it basically explains how design has adapted to the way the web works. Um, so we're not trying to reproduce print on the web we're taking the inherent constraints and the very McLuhan ideas of medium and media, uh, that the web is a different medium than print, and we're applying design and uh, experience strategies to the web. Um, and while the eBooks are slightly different than the web, I think it's still a parallel that's worth talking about and worth investigating more than just my 30 seconds of talking about a slide here. Uh, I promised myself that I wouldn't show any work. <laughs> um, I would just show trippy photos, but uh, turns out Chip Kid's cover for this Twice Upon a Time book is actually somewhat trippy, so I'm gonna count it. Um, I worked on this title with Adivis Books. I'll just quickly talk about, there's a link here. Um, it was this great immersive interactive story. There is a soundtrack that loops over everything. Um, I would encourage you to check it out, but the big thing I learned about it is that it's just as similar as an editor author, um, an editor and a developer, an editor and a designer, like they're very similar processes and I think uh, it would do us all well to learn sort of how to combine those two or how to work together better. 
Uh, last thought, I think I sort of brought this up when I was talking about the, uh, the startups versus publishers. It's better to do a lot of small tests than it is to do a big failure, um, which I'm hoping was not this talk. Um, so yeah, uh, again, feel free to find me afterward and we'll talk more about it. Thank you guys. Next week, we've got Keith Fretz from Scholastic talking about kids' books and how publishers can use transmedia properties to build online communities. If you want to learn more about what we do, you can find us at booknetcanada.ca. Thanks to Derek for speaking at TechForum and to everyone who attended or helped put it together. We gratefully acknowledge the financial support of the Government of Canada through the Canada Book Fund. And of course, thanks to you for listening.